Okay, well, then we can, then we can just go. Cause... Let's just do it. Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast for two straight white guys who went to Yale, solve America's cultural divisions by having lots of free time on their hands. Coming to you from Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Charles Bovinger. With me on the line, as always, from Istanbul, my co-host, David Will. David, how are you doing? You know, I've been better. Uh, but, yeah, it's a good point that you raised. We, you know, at this point, we could be doing this uh, every few days. We could do it on the weekends. We could do it on the weekdays. What's the difference? I mean, for me, this is definitely true. Um, dear listener, I am furloughed. Uh, the federal government is shut down, and I have nothing to do for a while. Um, I mean, I'm certainly using this time to get various things in my in my life sort of straightened out, you know, apply to jobs <laughs> that don't shut down every couple of months, um, clean up the apartment, that sort of thing. Um, it's a really rough situation for a lot of people in this town because a lot of people in this town work for the federal government and now they are effectively unemployed, but without really being able to just go get another job. And um, now you see when you go on, on Twitter, uh, people who are relatively heartless who will say, oh, well, those federal employees, they're going to get their pay later anyway because Congress always gives them the back pay after the shutdown is done. And that's true, but it doesn't help people who are living paycheck to paycheck now. It's not really great to say, you know, to say, well, I know I'm in default on my rent, you know, or, or this loan today, but in some unknown number of weeks, I will have the money. That's not or really, months or years. Or months or years. It's yeah, as as Trump would put it, it's not a, that's not a compelling argument to your landlord. Um, and right. of course, then you see in response people say, "Oh well, landlords love it when you fix windows and stuff for them. You should do that in lieu of rent." And everybody just, oh, "Really? What world do you live in that you think that's an option? You think your landlord's going to?" Are go you like, actually seeing these oh, opinions? Who is, these are real things. We just you go on Twitter, and that's what the responses are to anybody complaining about this stuff. And I recognize that comments in Twitter feeds are not, you know, the highest level of intellectual discourse. But you know, these are the arguments that I am hearing people say. And, you know, people, a lot of people these days will simply dismiss stupid arguments as being Russian bots. I don't quite go right. that far. But, um, yeah, well, there's a, it, somewhere between, yeah, R Russian bots, I think, is a particularly unhelpful expression for trolling you know, right. because trolling is uh is i think what the it, it's hard to believe that anyone would seriously believe the things they would have to believe to actually say those things that you're reporting um and when you're having a conversation like then again people might and um so it's just hard online to know when someone is speaking with their tongue in their cheek, you know, right. and basically saying like, yeah, I know, like refusing to concede the obvious fact that this is a stupid political stunt with extremely negative consequences, but, you know, stubbornly take the opportunity to, display their disdain for the federal government. Right. I, I, yeah. I mean, it's, you don't have to scratch very far on 
regular people to see people really make arguments like this. I mean, I just, everybody was just home for the holidays and um, my family hasn't had anybody, doesn't have anybody with really out there views that we get together with on holidays. But I've been talking to a lot of my friends who have come back from Christmas and their in-laws and they're, they're reporting to me the things their in-laws are saying, which are not the ones that I quoted earlier, but the sorts of arguments that they hear. And they really are, you know, not great arguments. That's yeah. regular well, people. Really do believe a lot of things yeah, like that. You know, no, and I'm, I'm thinking people I can imagine having these types of conversations. You know, people who, who repeat the sort of Fox News talking right. points about whatever period of the day. Like, yeah. And, um, and obviously, you know, Trump's disapproval rating is still only 53, 55, you know, his approval rating is still in the forties. So, yeah, as shocking as that is to believe. And this is when we have him on tape saying this is his shutdown and he should be blamed for it. Right. It's then again, conservatives seem pretty good at just pretending he hasn't said stuff that he has said on tape. Well, and there's the basic notion that the, I mean, this, this fundamental conflict is absurd. You know, he's talking about the wall. He's talking about this giant concrete wall. Then he's saying, no, it's a, it's, it's steel slats. Oh no, it's, you know, it's whatever, it's a metal barrier of whatever kind that the Democrats can, you know, whatever the Democrats can finally sort of get serious about and, and prove. It's like, and this will stop the people who come legally to the ports of entry at the border and present themselves for asylum processing, which is the caravan issue, right? Like they're not coming through the desert, the caravan they come straight to the point of, uh, you know, the port of entry because they believe they have the legal right to apply for asylum. You know, the wall doesn't stop them. You know, drug cartels? Is it going to stop the drug cartels? Obviously not. The drug cartels are sending drugs, you know, with mules who come through the border. They're hiding it in hubcaps or, you know, packs of sugar or whatever. Um, <laughs> or they're sending submarines up you know, to Florida, right? Like, I mean, it, it is just patently obvious that this is a, it's a stunt. It's as much as a stunt as uh, deploying the military was. And when you're talking about, uh, <clears throat> you know, 3.3 billion or whatever the difference between what uh, Pelosi is offering as the continuation of current spending levels and the extra spending that, the White House is demanding. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money, and it's money that could be spent on real things instead of symbolic things. And you mentioned before, you know, what is it worth shutting the government down over? And this is one of these issues where the Republicans over the past, I mean, arguably since Gingrich, but you know, particularly since, uh, you know, 2010 have been obsessed with this kind of brinkmanship politics, um, <clears throat> about, you know, holding the government hostage through the debt ceiling, through the refusal to approve, you know, to appropriate funds and breaking that habit 
is itself, I would think, worth standing up. I mean, you have to stand up to a bully, otherwise it keeps getting worse. Right. And uh, it has continued to get worse. Now we have Trump. And if the Democrats fold to Trump, then it just reinforces this behavior. So it strikes me as, as you know, it's, it's, an, it's symptomatic of this terrible position that our country is in. Um, but we have not, you know, we, the decent patriotic citizens of this country, have not chosen this fight. Trump has inflicted this on us. And his enablers are helping him do that. And um, that has to be, I think that's the sort of mindset in which um, this, this, this conflict has to be approached. And it seems to be the, seems to be the approach that Pelosi has. And, you know, if there's any leader to, to trust in right now, it's definitely Pelosi. She, I mean, she's just a master at her, at her profession. Yeah. That, I mean, Pelosi not having ever really gotten enough respect is something that has, it hasn't puzzled me because it's not hard to see step by step how that happens, but um, it's frustrating. Uh, I thought back in 2010 that it was really unfair that she was the one who really got the House together to get Obamacare through when the Senate started being dysfunctional and then Ted Kennedy died and we had all these, they had you know a lot of complications. She was the one who really did so much work to make that happen. And she was so much more effective than Harry Reid. And then she was the one who lost her speakership and where, well, Harry Reid continued to be a majority leader. Yeah. Well, it's not like, I mean, right. Life isn't fair and neither is politics. Yeah, it's not like, you know, it's not like, I mean, the whole point of the House and the Senate is that they um, run on different election schedules, so that Democratic majority was insulated. Right, it um, did take another four years but, that. Yeah. But no, I mean, Pelosi, what she managed to achieve uh, by marshalling, you know, the recalcitrant and, and timid uh, Democratic votes to get uh, the ACA through to get, I mean, she got the TARP passed. Uh, different people have different right. opinions on um, all the financial services uh, policies that came out of that period. You know, obviously a lot of people believe that uh, one of the major flaws of that early period was um, the excessive coziness that the Democrats had with, with wall street and not offering enough of a different approach to say, you know, to take credit, but it's, it's the same problem that they, that the Democrats have all throughout is that the Democrats are a coalition of centrist and left forces in our society. And the distance between the center and the left of the democratic party is perhaps expanding, but at nothing close to the rate at which the center that the Democrats hold and the Republican and even the center of the Republican Party, uh, you know, are separating at a, at a much much higher rate. 
So, yeah, I mean, Pelosi just has shown tremendous skill in marshalling the Democratic votes as they stand and in building majorities. You know, the role that she had in, um, you know, the mainstream Democrat uh, Democratic Party establishment had in picking candidates who could win in 2006 and picking candidates who could win in 2018 is, is very impressive. Um, so anyway, but, uh, yeah, but it's still, it's still, it's a crazy moment. It's, it's one of these moments where Sam Harris has this great phrase where he describes, uh, realizing after nine 11 that he was living in history. You know, the sort of thing when you read a history book about 1939 or, you know, 1860, or whatever, these sort of hinge points in history, uh, you read them and you think this is, or for many years, one would read these things and think, oh, yeah, this is stuff that happened in the past. And then for him, he said 9-11 was one of those moments, was was the moment where he realized, oh, I am living in history where anything can actually happen and the entire world can change overnight. And I'm having that an equivalent um, feeling now because as much as the, you know, there have been no guardrails and all sorts of things over the past couple of years have been unprecedented. Um, right. Well, this that, notion that, yeah, I mean, this, we, this, this notion that the, that the government is shut down, that there's no end in sight, uh, that the impasse is just festering, um, you know, standard standard political considerations don't seem to be operating. Right. Anything really does seem possible. We got, as a country, complacent over the last few decades. Um, not just since the actual end of the Cold War itself, but, you know, in the late Cold War, things were kind of, you know, they're stabilized. Uh, and and we, culturally, seems to, seems to have gotten to a point where we don't think anything we screw up is going to be that big a deal anymore. It's not one of those hair-trigger nuclear war-goes-off things anymore. And now we're not able to accept changes like climate change, which are these big, disastrous things coming up. And we're, well, no, it's not really going to change that much. You hear people saying, oh, how much impact can we really have on the climate? Um, and, you know, that's one aspect of it. And then in politics, there seems to be this view that all... I mean, this is this is the both sidesism that we have railed against in the past. This notion that oh, all of the political squabbling that occurs is just part of the normal give and take of politics. Both sides are equally guilty of all of these various offenses. It's not right to blame the Demo the Republicans more than the Democrats because both sides are the same, and that's not really true anymore. And it's hard to move over the decades from when that you know, ostensibly was true to now when that is very, I mean, I think demonstrably not true um, because we're not used to things making these kinds of changes. We're used to everything just being, okay, they win this election and then they win this election and, um, you know, it all gets back to normal in the end. Well, that we've, around 2010, we definitely, I mean, just to put one marker down, but you're right that Gingrich is also another one. You know, these are the points when people stopped playing politics in normal ways. I don't really know much about shutdowns prior to the Newt Gingrich ones. Um, do you have any yeah, historical I, background I, on those? Have there been I, any? I don't, I don't I actually don't, know. 
I'm sure that there were. I mean, right. it's one of these things that, you know, it's hard to imagine that um, that there weren't any. Right. But at the same time, I can't... I can't think of any, and I can't think of... I mean, I'd be surprised if there were more than a handful over the entire history of the government. Um, Whereas, for perspective, yeah. for anybody who's forgotten this, I have been furloughed three times in the year 2018, just the year 2018. <laughs> that's that's crazy. Um, yeah. And, you know, for me, this is, I mentioned before, people who are paycheck to paycheck who are just, you know, really in trouble right now. Um, and I don't personally know too many people who are in a lot of trouble right now, but friends of friends, I have a lot of friends who are very concerned about their other friends who are in that situation and who are in a lot of trouble. Um, you know, for me personally, the shutdown is not a disaster because I'm not paycheck to paycheck. This can go on for quite a while before it, you know, it becomes a problem for me. So for me personally, it's been you know, sort of just a nice little vacation that I get after Christmas where I can play through some of the video games that have stacked up <laughs> and, you know, apply to better jobs that don't shut down every few months. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that I, I can't enjoy that because I know how many people really are suffering. Yeah. And it's also just, it also just infuriates me because of how inefficient and insane it all is. I, I right, know well, from both, from all three shutdowns, how much work we had to go to in our office preparing for each shutdown. How much time, right. even if the shutdown hadn't occurred, that we wasted for that. For the last two shutdowns, I didn't even get a single sleep in because um, the timing was such that you have to come in even the first day of the shutdown to, you know, set things up for a shutdown, set up your out-of-office messages, stuff like that, um, get yeah. any projects that need to be paused, you know, paused. Um, and, uh, and and so both of those were, were soon enough that I never actually even had a single morning to sleep in. This one obviously has already gone on for two weeks, and one of those weeks was what is Christmas. You're telling me you didn't get to sleep in, Charles? Well, what, what a, I mean what by tragedy. sleep, I'm not using that as an example of how I was robbed of my <laughs> sleep. I'm using it as an example of how the other two shutdowns were over so no, the, quickly. The point is that the just, I mean, the Republican Party, and this is something that um, I think uh, it's just it it. it the importance of speaking clearly but strongly on this topic is just huge, uh, and but equal to the difficulty of speaking clearly but strongly, because um, the affiliations that people have are so deep that, you know, I was thinking about the way I was talking in some previous episodes uh, that we've done and talking about the depravity of, you know, the Republican party uh, bosses in North Carolina, for example, you know, I think anyone who is able to read a little bit about the topic and look objectively at the topic would agree that there's a callous contempt for the voters and for democracy that is pretty clearly exhibited by those politicians. But how do you talk about that without 
sounding like you're saying, but Republicans are depraved, that Republican voters are depraved, because that's obviously not true. You know, I think complacent is the best word. Uh, it's just they haven't realized what their party has become, or rather what uh, the cabal controlling their party has become and is capable of. And That's a very good point. I mean, um, people I talk just, to who are... As the people that I talk to who are conservatives, you know, they're not they're not fond of the crazy things the Republican Party is doing. They'll always start off with, well, Trump wasn't my first choice, but I really like the judges he's appointed or, you know, something along those lines. I like the deregulation. I like the tax cut. I I, I don't it, it's it's it is strange to look at it and sort of think at what point um, at what point. I don't know. How how do you know when a party doing the thing that used to be the party you liked, that does the things that that still does some things you like, has become so much less about the things that you like that now it's just this other thing that you can't support anymore? Right. And no, it's, it's it is uh, it it is obviously a very difficult thing because if it were easier, then more people right. would have abandoned the Republican Party already exactly. because. I mean, the record and what I wanted to say a, a minute ago, uh, but that I you know, felt the need to preface in the way that I did, was that um, <clears throat> the yeah, this, this uh, cavalier approach to shutting down the government simply reflects a childish lack of understanding of what the government is and does. Because it's not, you know, it's not just something that, as you said, it's not something that you can save money by shutting down. Right. Shutdowns you know, are incredibly not, expensive. Shutdowns are extremely expensive, both in the terms of uh, work hours, as you were describing, and the fact that, I mean, right now I was, I was skimming an article about um, the national parks, that, you know, every day that they're shut down, according to this thing I read, uh, the government fails to collect $400,000 in fees that they would otherwise get from people going to parks over, around the country. You know, in terms of the federal government's budget, that's not very much, but $400,000 a day is not nothing. Um, and then more to the point, trash is piling up, human waste is piling up. That has to be cleaned up. You know, that's overtime hours that have to be paid to people to clean it up when they can get to it. And until they can get to it, you know, wildlife, bears, foxes, whatever, are coming and they're going to eat that stuff. And that means they're going to hang around where the trash is, which means that they might start attacking people once people go back. It's, it's something that will take years and years of additional work to make the parks up to standard. So, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it's like a, it's almost like a body. And I, you know, I'm always, I'm perhaps overly inclined to, uh, go to these kinds of analogies, but, you know, if you are a healthy person with a balanced regular lifestyle, and then you are driven, you know, insane and you just stop moving, it's going to be very bad for you. <laughs> you know, you can't just stop a system 
you know, a very complex system, uh, all of a sudden just to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm just going to not do anything. And then a week later, a month later, a year later, okay, I guess I'll just go back to what I was doing before. You know, it, it doesn't, uh, in the same way that, you know, you, if you, uh, sort of interrupt your healthy lifestyle, you have to spend a lot of additional effort and maybe for years you won't be back up to the level of performance that you had while you were maintaining your healthy lifestyle. David is you know? currently commenting on my waistline, which has expanded over the last <laughs> year and a half. Yeah, that was a, preface, a misuse of the proverbial you. Yes. Well, it's, it's not really a misuse. A it was a proper use. <laughs> well, no, it's definitely much more of a confession than a uh, than an accusation or a... Or criticism. Right. I mean, imagine if you just don't brush your teeth for a year. You know, it's not like when you start brushing your teeth again, the cavities you get are going to go away. You're telling me you can smell my breath through the camera? <laughs> is, it, is it that bad? Um, well, actually, I can't because the camera is currently not operating due to the quality of the connection we're getting. So it's really just sound right now. Oh, that's weird. I can, I can see you. Well, that's but... because it wouldn't want to deny you of this gift. Yeah, there's yeah. some, I don't know, there's some joke about the FBI and the Russians in there somewhere, but... Right. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, these shutdowns are very costly. You know, they don't save money. Yeah. These are... It's Yeah, but it's it's hard to... Um... Yeah, I don't know. We could, we could beat that dead horse quite a bit, to... but it doesn't... I'm sort of curious what you... I mean, what do you... What do you think is going to happen? Let's just, let's just, one thing I want to do more of that I didn't do very well is making predictions that I can hold myself accountable for. So I didn't really do that at the end of last year. That's kind of but, a good point because when we started yeah. the show, we talked about how it wasn't going to be, you know, the horse race nonsense where it's irrelevant the day after the election. But if we really do an autopsy on our predictions um, and hold ourselves accountable for them, that actually is something that they don't really do much yeah. elsewhere. Yeah. Oh, exactly. And, you know, I think it's something that... Uh, I have to keep a prediction Silver, book, for example. I can write these down in. Yeah, we, you know, we both uh, have tremendous respect for Nate Silver. And one of the reasons I do, at least, and I'm sure you feel similarly, is that he, um, and the whole website, you know, they, te- they speak concretely and quantitatively, which allows them to go back and measure uh, what they said against what ultimately happened. And it keeps them honest. And, um, you know, another thing is that if that's your approach, then if you're wrong, if you turn out to be wrong, that's not a problem. Because your approach is gathering evidence and comparing your hypotheses with the evidence that you ultimately collect. And so whatever evidence you collect is just reinforces that approach. It's the old line right. that there are no mistakes, only more data. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, there, there are mistakes obviously, but, um, but I think it is a very, I think it's something that we need as a society to do more of is modeling that kind of approach, that, that humble, um, iterative, reflexive, empirical approach hmm. 
Yeah, this podcast is a great venue to record opinions. I am already embarrassed by some of the things I said in the, the first podcast. There oh, was yeah. a there was a bit where I think I went off on intersectionalism and or intersectionality. I think I guess is the way most people turn into a noun. Um, and like since then, have learned more about it, and am like already like horrified that somebody because sometimes when I meet somebody on a dating app or well, something, a friend, a, yeah, a friend said that all we're doing is creating opposition research for right. the rest of our lives, which is not wrong. I mean, you know, I don't really anticipate anyone doing opposition research on me, but the, but part of the point actually that I was getting at is that in the day and age that we're in, like someone might just, just meet us and decide they don't like us. And just as a personal vendetta, write a script to, you know, ask Siri to find whatever, you know, like find any information about us to discredit us. And, this is theoretically a source of that. But anyway, I was cutting you off. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that, I, I mean, that was just essentially, <clears throat> I was largely completed with that point, which was that when I, when I meet people on dating apps and so forth, uh, and I mentioned that there's a podcast, they always want to listen to it. Um, and uh, <laughs> they I always say they want to listen to They always it. say they want to listen to it. <laughs> and then it usually sounds like they listened to... Always the first step. Ep- I'm always like, don't listen to the first episode. We didn't know what we were doing. The sound quality is terrible. The call to prayer starts in the middle of it. Um, and then they always listen to the first episode. And uh, <laughs> it's uh, it just is kind of amusing to me that I I just remembered the other day there was a woman on one of the apps <clears throat> who on her profile had mentioned that I think I can I think I connected with who said on her profile that like she wants her feminism to be intersectional. And I was like, man, I hope she doesn't go back and listen to the first podcast. I went off on that and didn't really know what I was talking about. Um, but, you know, this whole thing is a learning process. I mean, part of what I love about this podcast is it gives me a chance to talk through ideas with you. And I know that that doesn't result in us disagreeing a lot, which listeners would like to hear more of. But it leads to me learning and growing, even if I'm never actually saying, oh, I didn't know that or, oh, I was wrong about that. Just through the process of the conversation, I believe I get to better places. Right, and that's that is what I was, uh, or that's a corollary to what I was saying before. It's that that's that's the way that people learn. You know, people learn by articulating their thoughts. And it doesn't have and, to be a specific moment where you realize something. You know, you learn right. and grow even in, when it's just part of a long conversation like this, where maybe. At the end, I never have a moment where I realize, oh, David's really changed my view on this, but maybe it happens anyway. Yeah, it's just the networks of associations that get triggered by the direction of your thought um, lead in all sorts of directions, and they don't necessarily result in a eureka moment in the direction of the conversation you were having, but it's this kind of, um, it's this whole web of, of thoughts and associations that you start sort of plucking at and the, the strings as it were, you know, the strings are vibrating in all sorts of directions. You don't really know what the result of that is going to be beforehand, but, um, <clears throat> but it's an exercise, you know, it's, it, it doesn't happen by, um, passively absorbing, or at least, you know, I, I don't think that genuine uh, 
growth and learning and thought happen from passively or uh, absorbing things. And this is where I think again, yeah, you know, there's certain direct, there's a way in which our culture is moving in a very dangerous totalitarian path where people are just sort of passing along undigested ideas about the way the world works. You know, they're, they're seeing headlines and not reading articles um, and saying, oh, this thing happened, isn't it terrible? Or, oh, this thing happened, isn't it wonderful? And they see someone else has said it, and so they just pass it along um, without, go, without that process, without this effort of saying, okay, what is this? Like, what is this idea? What does it say about the world? What's the context? Do I agree with any of this? Um, could you explain this to me? You know, explain it to me in your own words so that I know what you actually think about it rather than just what someone else has said they think about it. Um, and um, anyway, that, you know, the problem with it is that it is a messy process and you can embarrass yourself as we have done so many times. Um, but, uh, but it's, it's, um, but that's an interesting point necessary. on embarrassment in part, because one of the things that's really come up as an idea in the last couple of years, thanks to, I don't know, I can't imagine who in the executive branch, but someone, um, is that lack of shame is a positive, um, not, a, not like a good thing, but it is a, it is a strength in politics insofar as you get rewarded for having no shame. And right, but the difference the difference is let me just cut you off right there because the difference is that uh, let's go to Paradise Lost and Nietzsche. Let's combine these two things. What in Paradise Lost does Milton use to describe the devil? Hard, fossilized, unchanging, and proud. That's part of what makes the devil an interesting character or Satan, Lucifer. Um, but Milton is constantly describing him as, you know, reaching some moment where he's thinking about what he did and he's thinking, you know, did I make a mistake or anything? And then he hardens himself again. And he says, no, of course I didn't. I was right. And he refuses to repent. He has no shame. And he sticks to his guns. And again, that makes him an interesting character in certain ways. But the overall message is, you know, Satan is evil and unredeemable because he has no shame. He doesn't repent. And he doesn't change. By contrast, God is described as plastic, organic, growing, unfolding, creating constantly. And that's the core message to me of Paradise Lost is that um, you have to constantly grow. You have to constantly reevaluate and change. And that's, that's what God, the creative force of the of God, the creator, that's what that represents. That's why that God created man as the ultimate act of creation is creating this being that is born and grows and dies. 
Um, that's why man is above the angels, because the angels don't go through that. You know, the angels are perfect, but they don't change. That's, that's the core message. Um, Nietzsche says the same thing. You know, the highest form that we should aspire to be, the sort of archetype that we should inhabit, is the child. Constantly growing, constantly changing, constantly asking questions, and and not proud, not you know, not stuck in our ways and arrogant. And uh, the problem is that people, you know, people grow out of being a child. They stop asking questions. They think that they've learned everything, or they want to show that they want to show themselves as if they are angels, as if they are perfectly righteous and never make a mistake. And um, you know, that's another aspect of the online culture of call-outs that we have is like, you know, oh, look at these horrible people doing this horrible thing. Let's all point our fingers at those people who do these horrible things as if, you know, as if we are without sin who cast these stones. That was a very fascinating analogy that I don't quite see needed to interrupt what I was in the middle of. <laughs> but, but no, that was. I mean, that's that's a good example. Although, well, Trump you know, is Trump is the devil. Well, but that's but that's <laughs> the thing is that he's also so often described as a child. He's very childlike in his tantrums, in you know the way that he just expects to get what he wants. Um, now there are two sides to being a child. There's the side where you're always growing and changing, but there's also the side where while you're in that process, you're really hard to deal with. Yeah, I mean, I, that's that's fair. That is a, that's one of these paradoxes at the core of the concept that we, that was another thing that we said we would talk what about. What I had been thinking about, about in terms of the lack of shame was that what I, what I basically meant was um, it's people who have no shame and don't, because I, I, I was trying to connect shame to embarrassment because we have said things that, you know, as I've mentioned, I'm already embarrassed by things that were said on this podcast, you know, which was less than two years ago. Um, and I'll probably be embarrassed by something I said today um, soon enough. Um, and uh, the... the no, you don't have to be embarrassed for the shirt you're wearing. It is quite amazing. This was, <laughs> this was, yes. It's, it is a adorable little stormtrooper with his laser gun going pew pew. And um, my friend Leah got me this for my birthday when she was at Disney World or Disneyland, whichever one's in California. Um, and uh, and anyway, um, so I, I think that, you know, on the one hand, as I said, it's considered effective to not show shame. But I think what is better as a practical thing, you know, not necessarily well, when they say it's good not to have shame, it's good for your electoral prospects, not good for the job you will do. It is good, I think, to be relatively immune to embarrassment in the sense that you don't have to deny that you did something because you're embarrassed by it. Um, I think that, I mean, that's almost something that's a little childlike too. When you're a child, you don't have the sense to be embarrassed by certain things. You know, society takes us and makes us embarrassed by things we innocently did as a child that, you know, weren't wrong. You know, children ask questions that as an adult you consider inappropriate, but you are a child and you're supposed to ask those questions. And I say that as somebody who is, you know, often 
uh, notices how parents are afraid that their child will point at me and ask why that man is in a wheelchair, hmm. which is something that occurs relatively frequently. So, right, right. you know, that's should the child. I don't know. It, it it's it's no, we, that's a, a really that's a really interesting <laughs> example um, and a really good point, because, again, it's this. You know, why would it exactly like why like the, the parent why would the parent be embarrassed by any question a child asks? Because presumably they see it as a reflection on them. And, you know, I haven't raised this child properly not to ask questions like that. But again, like, why would you be offended by a question that a child asks? Right. And generally speaking, yeah. I'm not because it's a child. Exactly. And I know the child needs to learn. If an, when, if an adult asked that, like, so indeed, uh, the very first message I ever got on the very first dating app I ever used, which was about three years ago, in that first message, I like asked them a question. They answered the question and in the same message said, why are you in a wheelchair? Like that was the first, in the first message I got on the first dating app. And when an adult says it, you know, there's a lot more sort of subtext to it. It's a lot more annoying when an adult says something like that, it's almost like they're kind of reducing you to like, okay, this is the thing I want to know about you. Um, and uh, when a child is asking questions, it's just because children ask all kinds of questions and their minds are right. going all over the place. And generally speaking, every time a child has asked me that question and their parents have been like horrified, um, I'm usually amused by it. Um, yeah. And I love telling the story to other people because then they sort of cringe and we all have a good laugh. One of the things that I developed because of that—wait, <laughs> who has the laugh? I mean, you—you you could have a laugh, I guess. But well, I laugh all, all the time. You can just yeah. tell how my sense of humor is. I'm so deadpan sure. that this is actually a problem. In that I'm such a silly person, as everyone knows. But I am so deadpan in it that when I start to text to people who've never met me in person, which comes up on dating apps, then right. they often are very confused for a while until they <laughs> yeah. meet me, and then they go, oh, "Okay, that makes sense." Um, and I tend not to smile in pictures, which actually has to do with its own childhood trauma involving my inability to smile correctly and my parents yelling at me during family photo time and the stress that that induced in me. But the point is, I'm not smiling a lot in photos, even though I am such a silly person because my style is deadpan. Right. Um, but with children, I've actually developed a mechanism to – like I have my sort of defense, quote-unquote, mechanism for how it goes with children and their parents because I am – so often in elevators with little children who are in strollers, mm. um, you know, when we're on the metro, right? Because okay. we, the, the children in strollers have to take the elevator. I have to take the elevator. There's a lot of time like that. So I'm on the metro a lot of times where there's little kids who sometimes when they're on the, you know, the higher age of strollers will start being able to talk and ask questions. And, yeah. um, and they will stare at me because that's what children right. do. Right. And their parents will start to cringe and my mechanism to head off problems with that is that I wave at the little kids because right. when they start staring at me and I wave at them and then they wave back or they do that little thing if they're not in a stroller that little kids do where they smile and hide behind their parents' legs, right, right. Um, which is so adorable. But you know, I've developed a mechanism of doing this, and so now I just wave at little kids whenever I see them staring at me, and um, it really does seem to make the parents feel more comfortable, uh, right. and it's – yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's an interesting thing that I've come up with to deal with that, 
but it does make me sometimes wonder if the children should be learning something by asking questions and, you know, being reprimanded a little bit by their parents. Because I'm not going to be offended if they ask me, um, but there might be somebody else who is offended. Yeah, well, yeah, it's just an interesting, interesting direction that this conversation is now they, taken. They always do. Well, I mean, hopefully they do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this topic of judgment and <clears throat> growth and how the two are connected. Actually, just I mean, just today I was, or no, yesterday I was um, obsessing about grades that I had given this class of, you know, these two sections that I taught last year. It was just like trauma from the process of, <laughs> of assigning grades popped into my mind. It's like, what is it that, what's the value? You know, what is it that I was doing? What was the point? What does it serve? You know, can I really know what these students have achieved? what they've learned. Can I distill that down to a letter or a number? And, uh, and what's the utility of doing that? What's the utility to the student? What's the utility to the society? And, um, and there are equivalent questions as well for everybody sort of that they're sort of analogous to the conversation we're having now, which is like, you know, is it great inflation for you? to smile and wave at the child, you know, or should you be harsher? You know, should you sort of imply that the parent should have raised their child better? Like, obviously, I, I think we both have already indicated that we think that that's not the case. Um, and the children's curiosity and openness should be rewarded rather than, uh, or not, not rewarded, but encouraged. Right. Um, you know, that, that approach should be, uh, should be reinforced. Um, well, that's, but, that's an interesting thought in terms of grades, because children start as these little people who want to ask questions about everything. And then we put them in school where we're asking them questions to test them. And you sort of right. kill the curiosity after a while. And, um, you know, I was one of those people who managed to always have that spirit where I wanted to take lots of classes that maybe wouldn't be great for my GPA because I wanted to know things. But we do our best with, you know, it hurt my GPA in a lot of cases for me to take extra classes I didn't need to just because I wanted to know the material. So right, well, that's, we and that's my, that's my greatest curiosity. And that's my greatest regret of of Yale was not doing that, you know, not taking classes that I wouldn't, you know, not taking classes that I knew that I would get lower grades in um well as someone in high school missed... you know in high school being forced to take a variety of courses you know i did fine in all of them um but you know it was hard and so i thought oh you know i'm gonna move on and i'll have the opportunity to focus on my strength mm -hmm. which is you know writing and language and history and social sciences um and that wasn't I was obviously correct, um, but at what cost? Well, that's, I mean, that actually makes for an interesting contrast there because I 
Um, you know, speaking as someone who missed cum laude in law school by 0.01 on his GPA <laughs> entirely because – and entirely because I took an extra class that could have been a blank space on my schedule because I thought it would be useful to know accounting. Then I got a B in accounting. It is entirely because I took the class that could have been nothing that I didn't get cum laude. Like that was that was an actual very real um, you know punishment to have inflicted on me for trying to learn something. Um, right. And in in high school though, um, I actually I believe I had the record, which due to schedule changes later might not be achievable again, of the <laughs> most classes in my high school in senior year because I just wanted to take everything. And right. um, you know was that great for my GPA? Not particularly. And I even had to throw a few cons on some of the teachers to get into that ninth class because I wasn't really allowed to have room, but I just kept on the schedule for it, but I just kept going to it. And then eventually I convinced them it was a mistake and I should have been in the class all along. Um, <laughs> it was this whole thing. But the point is, you know, I did exactly That's like when what I, I, when I was like four and I convinced my babysitter that I had school <laughs> when my parents had told the babysitter that I didn't. <laughs> it was like why is the babysitter here if I have school? But I'm like, no, I, I have to go to school. <laughs> I, in my case, I just kept going to a class. And it was creative writing was the ninth class. I just kept going to the class um, because the thing was I had a conflict on the schedule with a different class, but that class didn't always meet the same days. And so I, I was able to set it up such that I just kept going to creative writing. And then when it came time for midterm comments, the teacher was suddenly like, wait a minute. I don't actually have an entry for you. And I said, oh, well, that must just be some sort of clerical error. I'll go fix that. That's hilarious. Yeah. That's hilarious. So that's how I took creative writing, which then ended up being my worst grade that at, at, at the last quarter. But, um, yeah. Well, there you go. But again, it's like that. And that goes back to my question of what is the point of the grade? Right. Um, what is the what is the utility and to whom does that utility accrue? And um, I think ultimately – going back to what we were talking about, what we were saying about Nate Silver and making predictions and sticking to them is there is utility. It's a signal. It's information. Did you do well in the class or poorly in the class? Did you master the subject or not? You know, it's going to be an approximate answer to that question because you're, you're moving back and forth between quantitative and qualitative uh, questions and topics and you know did the student master the subject you're going to try to figure out quantitative means of assessing that question but the question is a qualitative one right so you're you're, you're moving back and forth between these categories um but it's it's good both for the student i think ultimately and for the sort of the society uh to to have those at least you know those good faith gestures towards um you know towards uh rigorous evaluation but then the cost is like you know you missing cum laude like you should be able to put something equivalent to cum laude on your transcript to make it you know you shouldn't have to suffer for that right. because you know it was um uh it was a situation that if if people properly understood they should give you at least the same credit as they would presumably give you by seeing you know for seeing, seeing cum laude space, on yeah. your transcript or whatever 
but uh, um, but then again, you know. Right. Well, that's and yeah, in our senior year important. of one of the things that I'm happiest about ever having done in college is that our senior year, um, I really would have loved to take uh, Vincent Scully's art and architecture intro course. Um, but I couldn't really justify that on my schedule at that point. So what did I do? I just went to all the lectures and it was yeah. tremendous. I learned so much I didn't know. And it was so stress-free yeah, yeah. to just get to watch it. And I had friends who were in the class and they were super stressed out because it was a really <laughs> hard class. And I was just showing up mm. and I was learning so much about it. Um, you know, not being in the class, yeah, sure. I was more willing to miss a few <laughs> lectures than other people yeah. were, but, but it was a tremendous experience. He was a legend at Yale. Um, and, uh, I went to, yeah. I went to several of John Gaddis's uh, cold war lectures in the same way. And it was sort of a revelation of like, why haven't I been doing this the whole time? <laughs> right. I mean, if I were to give yeah. advice to, there was a lot of advice I would give to an incoming college freshman at Yale these days, but one piece of that advice would be, look, find excuses to just show up to lectures you don't actually belong in and see them. Maybe you'll see a new style of teaching that you haven't seen before in the way that it's, you know, that, that, that the instructor gives a speech. Maybe yeah. you'll learn a lot about a subject you would never learn about otherwise. It's it's really great. I'm really glad I just randomly started going to that class. I didn't sign up for it as a proper yeah. auditing thing because I guess that is a thing. I just showed up because it was a big, a big right. enough lecture I could hide. Even though the TAs had to special open even the better. door for my wheelchair entrance because yeah, <laughs> there well. wasn't there wasn't a ramp, right? Yeah. Um, so they knew I was there, but I don't think I think all of them thought I was in somebody else's section. So <laughs> right. so that worked out. I'm very glad that I did that. Yeah, uh, that's. But that's but I mean, you know, I mean, yeah. and, and you know, and you know as well that uh, that you're doing it purely for the. You know, for the thing itself, you, know, you yes. weren't uh, chasing a grade or, or even trying to pad your transcript with that yeah. audit line. Well, here's uh, so a, a wonderful thing that that um, is sort of relevant to this point. Um, so I have to say, I did do that in Princeton, by the way. My, you did just pad it with I, audit lines. I did learn that lesson. Oh no, no, I went to classes that I that oh, okay. couldn't audit. Um, if I couldn't officially audit, uh, but just went to the classes, right? Because I had learned that lesson late at Yale, but in times for grad school, right? And it's it's very different going to a class than it is like listening to the lecture online. Like it's still worth listening to online because they do have a lot of those great courses online, but yeah. it's different to be there. Uh, it just is. It keeps your yeah. attention focused better. Um, there's a different feel. It I I really because you have so much free time in college in the middle of the day. And that, even if you sit in another lecture and like do your homework for a different class. I was like, going to say, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah. anyway, so the point that I wanted to, an interesting um, uh, example of this that I just saw in a movie. <laughs> so during your free time, you're going to go to Georgetown and yeah, exactly. write some lectures and um, write so, emails to your friends. So I just saw the absolutely tremendous movie Into the Spider-Verse. Um, okay. I don't know if you've heard about this one over there in Turkey, David. Um, it is a, an animated Spider-Man movie that came out a couple weeks ago. Um, it is basically about an interdimensional rift being opened and all of these different alternate universe Spider-Men um, and, and Spider-Women um, 
being together in this in this movie. And it is that may sound okay, sure, comic book, whatever, roll your eyes. It is amazing. It is at ninety seven percent on the tomato meter. Um, it is actually just truly fantastic. Every part of it is brilliantly done. Um, and there's that's, a, what I've, that's what I've seen yes. headlines. There is a moment in it that I want to bring up here because part of the plot when it starts off is that the main character, Miles Morales, is um, a, a kid who wins one of those New York City lotteries to go to a better school. And, hmm. um, you know, there's a there's a discussion at the beginning of the movie where he sort of mentions that it's not fair that he's just going because he won the lottery. And his dad is like, yeah, but you had to you had to do well enough on the test to be in the lottery. Um and uh, there's a part where he he doesn't like this school. He wants to go back where his normal friends are. And so um, he takes this test where all the questions are true or false, and he gets zero out of 100. And his teacher is holding this up in front of him, and he's like, oh, well, I guess you're going to have to fail me. I'll have to leave this school. Too bad. And the teacher is just looking at him, and she's like, no, if you were guessing at random, you'd get about 50 out of 100. Statistically... The likely, you know, the likeliest way for you to have gotten zero out of a hundred is if you knew which answers were correct and then just put the opposite. You w- you didn't just yeah. guess your way to zero out of a hundred. And then she gives him a one hundred out of one hundred on the test because even though he put the wrong answers down, he clearly knew the material. Right. And I I love that as um. Just yeah, a that's a, that's story. a great. No, it's a great story because. Um, Stop me if I've already told you about this, or maybe I was talking with my brother about this. But um, <clears throat> there's some principle, and I, I don't. There must be a name for it, but I don't know the technical name. But you know, any um, any any measure ultimately becomes a goal. Mm. And as it becomes a goal, it ceases to be effective as a measure. There's a, you know, I there's don't a know that I've heard of a phrase that. for that, but that, I mean, that sounds profound. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it it's the concept true. of, you know, teaching, like, in high teaching schools. Teaching to the test, Teaching yeah. to tests. Yeah. You know, you're not actually conveying knowledge. You're, you're attempting, you're reacting to a, um, to a pattern that was itself determined as an attempt to serve as some objective gauge of uh intel of you know raw intelligence of studiousness of mastery of some particular set some particular body of knowledge you know but as the test becomes established and the patterns become established then students adapt to those patterns and the you know the distance between the test and the thing being tested gets further and further and you know <clears throat> I was um, I was uh, you know I had a very concrete example of this uh, thinking about doing uh, push-ups for the Army Physical Fitness Standard and you know it's a funny thing because when you're you know when the test is being uh, implemented your incentive as someone going through the test is, you know, what is being tested? Well, the test results in a number. And so the goal is to have as as high a number as possible. So how do you have a high number? You have a high number by skimping on the movement. Hmm. But if you're skimping on the movement, then 
you're not, you know, then you're not um, using your physical strength, right? And so that that number itself creates a difference between the test and the thing being tested, which is to say uh, your physical strength. Hmm. Or the particular Listener, strength. If you, you do know muscles. the term for this, let us know. Um yeah, that's yeah, that's. I mean, that's yeah. a really good point. I mean, I've, I've, I'm aware of, right, sort of you, the concept, do, but that was a good way of phrasing it. Perfect movements. Yeah. Right. If you do a perfect push-up every time, you're going to do fewer, move, you know, repetitions than someone who shaves off a couple degrees on either end of the movement and doesn't go through quite as much of a range of motion, doesn't support their weight quite as much on the way down. That sort of thing, and um, you know, so there there are infinite examples because it's a it's an inescapable fact of uh, you know of life that you know. Um, anyway, uh, so so it's a beautiful so the Spider-Man example is a beautiful example of a benevolent teacher kind of seeing through this. Um, you know, embracing that paradox and saying, uh, okay, this test is testing your mastery of the subject and the number that you got is zero, but I can, I know enough to understand that the number itself means nothing and I can interpret this number through my knowledge of, you know, the subject to, to realize that you actually have perfect mastery, not, right. not zero mastery. And to some extent, this is where um, I remember some of the discussions that I had with college counselors and stuff was that some of those tests where you get a number, like a GPA or an SAT score, to some extent, some of those are sort of you get to a certain level and then it doesn't really matter if you eke out a few extra points. Now they're looking, Now they've got their attention and they're looking at other things. And right, to yeah. some extent, that's a better way to do a metric where it just has to you just have to have a threshold that you meet. And then it says, OK, now we can take a deeper because you can't look at everybody in complete detail. But you can say people who pass this threshold, we can look at a bit more closely. Right. Um, and, and again, that gets back to. Uh, I mean. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, how do you how do you reduce someone to a number? How do you reduce someone to a single tweet? You know, how do you reduce someone to fifteen seconds of grainy cell phone footage? Right, right. Mm -hmm. Like, there's this way in which our culture is moving towards these instant um, judgments of people that are very possibly affecting their entire lives. By creating a digital and and those judgments are trail. unchanging like the devil like the devil despite the fact that the totality of the person is you know the totality and the totality of the person may indeed be even worse than whatever people right. you know think it is uh from the you know from the moment it, it could be much worse uh but you know but the totality of person of the person is by is you know is by definition more complex and vast than 
spend that single moment. But you know, we're moving in this direction where people are reduced to those moments. And it'd be nice if we could learn as a society, you know, react to the internet um, to slow down and realize like, oh, there are so many examples that we all see so many times of how like of, of just how wrong our inclinations are. Yeah. But you know that's but we seem to be yeah. That's the problem with you know these people because in due in part to confirmation bias and other things, people remember the times they were right, not the times they were wrong. And that's why it's right. better to hold yourself accountable for your predictions. Right. So before we close, <laughs> so all that, of us is to say, yeah. how long do you think the exactly, exactly what I was back to is, <laughs> you know, let's put ourselves on the record for how long it will. I myself can't, I can't venture any kind of educated guess on it simply because um, it's based on at this point, the shutdown is happening because Trump is insisting on money for the wall. Um, the Democrats don't want to give him the money for the wall. And frankly, paying the hostage taker isn't a good strategy in the long run. Right. Um, I, the Democrats not only have no incentive to give him the wall because they don't want him to have the wall. They also don't want him to give, give him the wall because then he will come back with other extortionate demands, which is, in fact, right. what has happened since the Tea Party took over. We've been getting more and more of these looming shutdowns and debt ceiling crises because they keep thinking they can extract something from it. And sometimes exactly. they've been able to get a little bit and, you know, making this in any way an effective strategy is not acceptable. And so I think the Democrats shouldn't cave. If Chuck Schumer were the one that Trump was dealing with, Schumer would probably cave because that's what he does. But um, Pelosi, I don't see caving on this. And so, it yeah. I mean, it, it would seem to me in, that historically something like this would end with Trump getting some face saving thing that isn't really a wall, but lets him claim it's a wall. Um, much like he keeps even changing his definition of what the wall is. And now it's even become right. a mass noun, not a singular noun. We must build wall. <laughs> um, right. And so, you know, so I have no idea how long it will last. The last two shutdowns, you know, that I was in, as I said, didn't. Not good me. enough. Not good enough. Right. Give me a number. Exactly. Um, yeah. Well, if I were to, to make something that I think would be. Rather than giving a date, I'm going to say that my prediction is that Pelosi does not back down and that whatever happens does not result in him getting direct border wall funding. That's the prediction. Sure, that that's I'll fair make. enough. Yeah. Yeah. So what's I, yours? I think, I think it'll be another month or so from now. Oh, boy. I mean, as that's much as... That's what I'm afraid of. I think it's, yeah. it's going to continue. I think it's going to continue to the point... I don't think that Pelosi is going to back down. And I think that it will continue to the point that Trump starts to face an actual uh, defection of Republicans as, you know, because I saw a clip, uh, <clears throat> a very short clip uh, a few days ago where this, a couple, I think, in New Mexico or Arizona, I think it was somewhere in the Southwest, um, where it was a, a couple who were both federal employees and were both Trump supporters and said, you know, and the, the man was, was talking and he said, uh, you know, I, I support the president and 
if this topic weren't directly affecting my family, I would say, you know, stand tall for what you believe. But but this is something that is uh, hurting my family. And, and Mr. President, I support what you're doing, but I hope you understand what it's doing, you know, to my family. And I was paraphrasing, you know, a few times there, but, but the thing that they said was like, I support you. And if this weren't directly affecting me, and it's one of these right. things where I wanted to reach through the screen and grab him by the neck and just say, how dare you? you know, how dare you be so foolish and selfish? You're a citizen of this country. You're not just your family, you know, and you're a federal employee. You were in a position of trust given to you by the taxpayers who are paying your salary. You know, you must think more broadly, but obviously um, I couldn't do that. And it would be counterproductive uh, to attack people in that position of, of fear and desperation. But I think more than more of those people are going to get to a point where they start calling their congressman and saying, you know, I'm going to have to sell my car. We can't, you know, I'm going to have to do this, do that. We can't keep this going. And, you know, the, the government is also a major employee. I mean, whatever the, what, forgetting my, you know, the total, I mean, the, the gross national product, a significant part of that is government spending. And so that has been taken out of the economy. And the effects will begin to be felt, particularly as, you know, the, in the stock market, um, there, you know, significant, uh, there has been a significant waning of animal spirits, I suppose we could put it that way. So I think it'll last, uh, you know, it'll probably last another month, uh, give or take a week or so. And I think that the end of it will be Trump basically saying, um, you're just declaring victory and pretending he won despite losing. Yeah, I mean, so, that's, that's, bas- that's what he did with the election last year. He clung to the Senate and said, we won seats in the Senate. It was a tremendous victory. Yeah, exactly. So I think, I think it'll be complete disconnection from reality and it'll be driven by a collapse. And, you know, I wish I could be happy about saying this because I'm describing this this very malign tactic failing, but I'm, I'm very unhappy because it'll come at a huge cost to the country. I think that this will continue for, for another several weeks. I mean, it reminds that the, the I, <laughs> there are so many articles that I have seen of Trump supporters who are shocked that the horrible thing Trump said he would do affected them. And <laughs> right, like exactly. guys were like, well, my wife was an illegal immigrant, but I didn't think she was one of the bad ones. So I didn't think she'd get taken away or, um, you know, I sure I run an industry that's that's dependent on imports that are affected by the tariffs. But I didn't think my industry would be affected by it. And that right. is the point where, as you said, it's like you just want to grab these people and be like, what is wrong with you that you thought it was OK yeah. if it didn't affect you? And now right. you're upset because it does affect you like. God, it's it's very frustrating. But then again, that sums up the last two years. Well, and this is the thing. I mean, this is what Trump, you know, Trump is 
uh, Trump is like the nemesis sent by the gods to destroy us for our hubris. Right. You know, just the, the complacency that has led so many people, whether they be on the left or the right, right? The complacency of people saying like, yeah, you know, those, yeah, the system, it's all against us anyway. Those people are all the same. All those politicians, you know, Oh, this third wave, you know, those third wave, uh, third wave Democrats, <laughs> basically Republicans anyway, it doesn't matter, it makes no difference. You know, those people are just as complacent in their own way as these Republican voters who have f- refused to see what their party has become over the last, you know, certainly over the last 10 years. Um, and it, it's very depressing, obviously, there's no, you know, there's no joy that that comes from this, but, um, again, I go, you know, it's information, right. And it's a, it is an indelible signal. You know, Trump is an, is a signal that is much clearer than Jeb Bush or, you know, or George W. Bush or McCain, you know, and a lot of Republicans now seem to have finally understood like, Oh, that's, what this means that's what gop means now you know and the fact that that signal had to had to come the way it did is a is a huge tragedy for the entire world um and there's so much we could have talked about i mean the kurds right we talked a lot about kurds in previous episodes as well um you know i mean the fact that there are a million muslims in torture camps in China. Right. You know, that's something that American moral leadership could have could put at least try cast more light on. Exactly. You know, um, I mean, there are just so many things that, uh, I mean, we could have stood up against it yeah. instead of saying, Oh, could we have your blueprints to build around our border? We we would very much like to put our you know our we would like to put our, our minorities wall, right. in concentration camps as well if you would let us, which you know some people would hear that remark that I just said and probably think oh you're being so hyperbolic how dare you compare it to that but look at what is do- being done along the border you know right. children are dying right. and then and of course the response to that is well the children should never have come it's their fault for crossing the desert yeah. Like it's, it's, I mean, that's, I think a whole, we need to do a whole separate episode in the future on just the phenomenon of the political tactic of destroying people's empathy and compassion, compassion, the yeah. ability to make people <clears throat> not care about suffering. Yeah. Well, one of the, I mean, you know, this just another really interesting example that has stuck with me of this series of. You know, like, well, until it happened to me, I never realized, uh, example, you know, sort of cases was when I was trying to figure out how to apply for a visa for my wife to come with me when I returned to the United States. Um, one of the things I found was this YouTube video where this like 25 year old from Dallas is describing applying for a visa for his first fiance and then spouse, 
uh, who is Canadian. And even for a Canadian, the process was taking an unconscionable amount of time. And there was this moment in this video that he put on YouTube where he's, where he says, and he's like, he's just, he's like a 25 year old good old boy from Dallas. He's talking with his Texas accent. He's like, and you know, I just, I just don't think people understand that. I mean, we are good people and she's a good person. She, she's not a bad person. And I don't understand why, why she can't just come into this country. You know, we can't start our lives together. And David is from Texas. For those of you who find his Texan accent racist. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. Here's my, here's my, uh, the, the tweet to end my career yes, or exactly. whatever. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's what yeah, it I mean, Yeah. Right. But, uh, you know, I mean, he was a, um, I, I was, it, it was a tragic moment because, his heart, I mean, he, you know, the scales had fallen from his eyes and it's impossible to convey how brutally stupid and callous the system is. Right. The, I mean, that at this very moment is preventing me from starting a life with my wife in my own country. Yeah. It's, it's, oh. well, but I mean, there's sort of a separate thing involved here and just the very, I mean, it, we really are over time here, but, um, yeah. I was struck as you're mentioning, oh, we're good people. They could see that we're good people. I think that part of the difference in mentality between the left and the right to a certain extent in the U S is that, um, and you, you see this in a, in a number of, of areas. And I think, um, the, oh, I didn't think it was going to take my wife as an undocumented immigrant, um, and so forth, is that um, we're, there's a bit of a tendency on the right to be perfectly, to, to want to meet everyone that they're going to help and see that they're good people, um, when that is just not yeah, practical right. on a mass scale. And because that's the thing, if you would meet all these people who are affected by the Muslim ban, you'd see that they're good people. Uh, you know, there's yeah. like, and it, 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 there's sort of a similar thing with charity where I see, you know, there are, there are plenty of very good charitable right wing groups, but I, I've always sort of felt that part of what's going on with people who want, you know, this is to be a local charity that we're involved in very directly so that it's not going to undeserving people who don't want to work. Well, you know, that, that causes a lot of major efficiency problems and a lot of deserving people fall through the cracks. Because yeah. you insist on knowing the people you help to make sure that you know they deserve it. When, you know, even if a few undeserving people get it, that might be more efficient and that might be better. Yeah, well, and, I mean, and again, not to drag on for too much longer, but to tie it back into what we were talking about before. There's another one of these, another example where um, the test and the thing being tested are you know, are not the same thing. And there is a, there's a gap between them. And when we're talking about human lives, that gap is inhumanity. It's, you know, it's, it's a minimum callous and it is potentially truly inhumane and, and abhorrent because, you know, even the most benevolent test to say, you know, even if you had an open border, 
if you're policing the border at all, and all you're saying is anyone can come to this country, but we just want to know who you are, right? That's a that's pretty reasonable, right? As a as a minimum policy of just recognizing that a border is there. It's just who's coming into the country. Well, there are going to be some people who don't have documents. And there are going to be some people who have very good reason not to have documents because they had to flee where they were, for example. You know? Um, and even the most benevolent policy, even, you know, just doing the minimum to, to control the border is going to create uh, terrible burdens on those who are least deserving of any burden at all. Uh, unfortunately, it's inescapable because, you know, the, um, you know, the people fleeing from Syria, people fleeing from uh, Rakhine State in, you know, in Myanmar, I mean, those are the types of people that don't have, you know, didn't necessarily have documents in the first place. And as their villages or cities were being destroyed and their families murdered, you know, they didn't necessarily have the time to gather all that information. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a sort of parallel conceptually with what we were talking about before where, you know, where at some point you have to step back and say, like, have we lost the ability to treat these people as human beings? Well, I don't really have to ask that. I feel like the answer is kind of clearly yes. The obvious, yeah, the answer is obviously <laughs> yeah. yes. But, in, in many examples. And, yeah. yeah. But anyway. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Well, we are well enough over now, but since we have had to be a little bit spottier in our release schedule, I'm sure the audience won't bemoan an extra 15 minutes or so. Um, so, uh, all right. Well, I will hopefully see you uh, soon, David. See our, you too soon, our listeners. And, you know, hopefully by the time we record our next episode, it won't be me going um, completely stir crazy. And uh, hopefully I will still be a reasonable person. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah, yeah, thank you. In the meantime, see you later, David.